Today on the Women Mind the Water Artivist Series, I am speaking with Violet Sage Walker. Violet is the chairwoman of the Northern Chumash Tribal Council and nominator of the proposed Chumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary. Violet carries on the legacy of her late father, who had a vision to protect 156 miles of California coastline. The Women Mind the Water podcast series engages artists in conversation about their work and explores their connection with the ocean. Through their stories, Women Mind the Water hopes to inspire and encourage action to protect the ocean and her creatures. I am honored to welcome Violet Sage Walker to the Women Mind the Water Artivist Series podcast. Both Violet's heritage and her position as chairwoman of the Northern Chumash Tribal Council have imbued her with the responsibility for the natural resources of her ancestral home. Violet says the ocean acts as her compass. Following her father's lead, Violet has been working to have a section of the Central California coast designated as the Chumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary. It will be the 17th National Marine Sanctuary and the first Indigenous-led sanctuary. It would serve as a natural bridge between the Channel Islands, the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuaries. Welcome, Violet. I am most honored that you accepted my invitation to be on the Women Mind the Water podcast. Well, Thank you, Pam. I'm really happy to be here. Oh, so am I. Um, well, I'd like to focus on the Chumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary. I do want to recognize that this is only one aspect of your life, and your work as the chairman of the Northern Chumash Tribal Council. Among many passions and activities, you are an accomplished horsewoman, scuba diver, as well as steward of natural resources, Chumash culture, and history. Violet, I expect that many of my listeners are unfamiliar with the stretch of California coast you are now trying to protect. Maybe you could begin by describing the area you call home. Then maybe you would tell us something about the Chumash people. I read an article that described them as maritime people. Sure, Pam. Um, I um, expect most of the people would be familiar with this area if you told them Morro Bay or Pismo Beach. I think people in the whole um, around the world love those two places and everybody knows um, Morro Bay for the rock, um, the Morro rock feature there. And it's one of the nine volcanoes. Um, the Shumash name for Morro rock is Lei Samu. And it means the one that stands in a sacred place. And it was um, a very sacred spiritual um, gathering place for the Shumash people and for indigenous people all around the world. They used to travel and journey to the uh, Morro Rock to pray and, and offer um, ceremony. Um, so um, the actual location of the, um, the Shumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary would um, begin at the ending of the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. So mm -hmm. they would be they would be together. Um, they would join together and to create a um, stretch of California coastland protected all the way from the north, the greater Farallones, all the way down to the Channel Islands. And so this is something that has been a vision for almost 40 years and almost three generations of Chumash people. So unfortunately, um, my dad isn't here to see the designation go forward, but he put in uh, decades of work into protecting this coastline. Uh, the Chumash people actually range from Malibu all the way to Big Sur. 
inland to Bakersfield and then down into the Central Valley. So we have a really big territory and um, the Chumash Heritage Ashtabri Sanctuary encompasses nearly all of it in equal equal size, but on the ocean side. Okay. So I, I heard you say Chumash, so I will apologize um, to having said Chumash. Um, um, I, I, I wasn't going to correct you. A lot of people say it different ways. Um, I say Chumash, um, but a lot of people will um, pronounce the H more. Um, but I, I don't know that there's, um, that it's that off. So you're pretty close. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Was your dad an avid mariner? Um, my dad grew up at the ocean hunting. He, you know, he, he was what we call first generation out of the mountains. He loved to be out on the water and he loved to eat fish. And so he grew up, you know, on the coastline and, and when we talk about first generation, you know, he, he grew up with no running water, electricity, or vehicles. So they they actually um, grew most of their food and fished and hunted for most of their food. And so even though, um, you know, he was um, a very contemporary person, he was born into a very traditional, um, probably the last, um, the last of our people living, you know, off the land here in Avila Beach. What are some of your memories of being by the sea with your father? I'd say the earliest memory that I have of my dad, he used to, um, when I was a little kid, we used to do the grunion runs and trying to figure out the grunion runs always like impressed me how you, you know, you, they come on the, you know, the third setting sun of the full moon on the beach facing north on like, you know, there's like 50 million things that you have to align perfectly for the grunion runs. And I was always impressed by that as a kid. And so we would go out in the middle of the night with a bunch of people at the beach and, and collect grunions and then, and then eat them right there, like barbecue them. And um, they're, they're delicious. So um, that was an interesting memory. I know that not a lot of kids get to do that nowadays because of the, um, the population of grunions is very endangered in California. So did your father have any special stories that he liked to share with you about the sea? I think every story of our people, you know, it eventually comes around to the ocean and the sea. Um, the ocean off of our coast here is um, the center of our culture. So all of our stories about trading, traveling, about money, our money was our shells, um, shell beads, the um, olabella shells, the little round circular um, spiral shells um, were considered money beads um, and wealth. And so the sea um, dis was a way of us displaying our wealth and as a tribal people. And still to this day, um, you'll see at gatherings, you'll see a lot of abalonian shells on our, um, on our regalia and um, so every one of our stories, you know, talks about um, the food that we ate and the ceremonies that we performed and then our brothers and sisters and our animals that we are responsible for caretaking for um, everywhere from the little plankton all the way to the big, huge whales off of our coast. You know, we have an innate um, intertwined interconnectivity to all of the animals here. So um, it would be hard to find a story that didn't include all those aspects in it and some type of, you know, moral lesson about um, our responsibilities as caretakers, too. So what was the impetus for your father to nominate the area for a National Marine Sanctuary? And maybe you could start by explaining what a ma Marine Sanctuary is. 
Sure. Um, the National Marine Sanctuaries, there's um, 16 in the system. National Marine Sanctuaries are the water-based counterparts to a national park system. And so they're the very underfunded counterparts to um, state parks and federal parks. Um, basically, it's an area of heightened significance. And the easiest way to explain it simply is to think about someplace like Yosemite or Yellowstone. That's an area that we consider of heightened value intrinsically and otherwise. And the same with the marine sanctuary. The designation protects areas that are special and essential to critical habitat and biodiversity. And uh, the reason why my father um, initially got involved in nominating um, the National Marine Sanctuary was because of the threat of seismic testing off of the coast of California. Mm. And that was that happened about um, between like eight and 10 years ago. There was a big Coastal Commission hearing in um, Southern California that was um, very well attended with people opposing seismic testing because of the damage it does to all the marine life. And from that event and from that time, my dad formed a coalition with other groups like Surfrider, Sierra Club, EcoSlow, um, and Coast Alliance and, and different organizations that had um, opposed the seismic testing. And um, from that group, um, we were told that the um, NOAA Office of National Marine Sanctuaries was opening up the nomination period for new National Marine Sanctuaries for the first time in 20 years. So we thought that the National Marine Sanctuaries was the best way to permanently protect our coastline. And right about the same time, um, the administration um, allowed um, the offshore leases there. Um, there's about 35 offshore leases off of our coast here from Morro Bay down to um, Vandenberg that are um, offshore oil leases. So those also became available. So the danger and the the um, the urgency was there to to make this nomination go forward with the um, federal protection. So if it was designated a national marine sanctuary, would that prevent uh, use of underwater uh, sounds for exploration of oil? It would actually prevent um, all um, offshore oil and seismic testing. Um, it would. Um, there has historically never been any type of resource extraction within the National Marine Sanctuary System. So that can be a wide range of things, including mineral mining. So um, it protects the, um, the marine environment in, in a holistic approach. So it would definitely prevent any future oil leases from being developed or any type of future um, natural gas or seismic testing exploration in the marine sanctuaries. How far out would the sanctuary go? 15 to say 20, 25 miles out. So mm -hmm. we're talking federal waters, depending upon um, where the boundaries is drawn. So you're a scuba diver. And see, now you can hear my dog. Um, I imagine you've explored the waters in the proposed areas. Can you take us on a dive under the water and describe what someone would see? Sure. Um, depending upon the day, you might see nothing because sometimes the visibility off our coast is zero. Um, <laughs> it's very cold. It's very, um, you know, it's it can be very um, challenging to get off of our coast depending upon what area you live in. So we have a lot of rocky shorelines. So um, prepare yourself. You know, um, you're going to be diving off of the beach and um, potentially off of boats. 
but um, the visibility off of our coast, depending upon what time of year, um, that when the winds come up, it can be it can be nothing. So you want to find like a really nice sheltered cove like Avila Beach or Shell Beach that has nice kelp forests and that has protection from the winds coming offshore. And um, I like to dive in the kelp forest. Um, that's where I see the most fish. The kelp forests in the, on the coast here are very healthy and and beautiful. That's where we have our protected southern sea otters. Mm -hmm. um, so the kelp forests are like the land version of like a Sequoia National Forest. They're um, you know the most vibrant um, forms of um, living ecosystems with every kind of animal you can think of, from sharks to whales to you know, sea otters all the way down to like the little fish and um, rockfish, eel. Uh, you get a lot of lobster off the coast of California. So lobster diving um, is really popular. And um, and that is one thing I wanted to mention is that um, commercial and recreational diving opportunities inside the marine sanctuaries have improved every single year that the marine sanctuaries have been in, in effect. So we're looking at the celebration this year, 50 years of National Marine Sanctuaries. And the celebration is gonna be in the middle of September. And so uh, specifically the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary has been designated for 30 years. So the, um, the fishing, the measurable data that we get out of the Marine Sanctuary shows that the quality of fish, the quantity of fish and the amount of fish and price per dollar has gone up every year that the Marine Sanctuaries have been in effect. So that's one thing that um, people have a lot of questions about is whether or not they'll still be able to fish. And um, a lot of scuba divers are also recreational fishermen. So um, it's really important to let people know that diving and recreational sports activities are all um, are all compatible with National Marine Sanctuaries. So your father started this process about a decade ago. So what is the status of the proposal? The proposal is in the designation phase, which means right now NOAA is going to be writing a management plan. And we are hoping that this will be the first management plan that will have and include tribal co-management as being um, the tribe nominating the National Marine Sanctuaries. We're also asking NOAA to allow us to co-manage the National Marine Sanctuary. So um, we are waiting to see what that management plan will look like. And we should see that within the next four to six months. And then at that time, the public, we're gonna be asking the public to make comments on that, whether we like it, whether we wanna change it, whether we wanna improve it, whether we want to start again, it could be a comment about anything. So at that time, we're gonna see, um, you know, what our, our initial reactions are to the management plan and then, if the management plan is great and most people support it, then we'll go into um, the designation will end, the National Racing Shore will be nominated. And at that point, then we will hopefully implement the tribal co-management plan that we came up with. So is there a way that listeners can help to bring the process to a successful conclusion? The best thing for right now for us to have is support through our social media and through our email list. And we're gonna be asking people to make those comments in four to six months on the proposed um, management plan. And so right now we'd like to just build our database of supporters. That way, when we do call on people to submit comments and submit um, uh, documents directly into the NOAA's uh, federal register program, 
um, that we will give them the information and the resources they need to be able to write those comments and to be able to navigate um, uploading them to the Federal Register. So um, our website is shumashsanctuary.org. And um, you can also email info at shumashsanctuary.org. And at that time, um, we're going to need as much of our supporters as we can all around the world. So how would the um, management by the Shumash people differ maybe from the way uh, other marine sanctuaries have been run through NOAA? Typically, um, Native Indigenous groups um, are put onto advisory sections of any type of committee. And we're asked to advise, but not to participate in the, you know, green economy and blue economy. And we're not actually doing the work of managing and running day-to-day -day operations of, say, state parks or federal parks or um, any of our uh, marine protected areas or marine um, uh, national marine sanctuaries. So um, part of um, building our capacity is um, involving Chumash people in the day-to-day -day operations of um, management of their lands in the ancestral homelands and also building um, resiliency into marginalized groups mm -hmm. and groups that have historically not had the access. And so a lot of times Indigenous people around the world are asked to solve problems like and address problems like climate change or forest fires and using in traditional Indigenous knowledge oftentimes um, their ideas are incorporated into these huge um, plans and rightfully so but the people themselves are left behind and so um, we'd like to see that that dynamic change to where the people um, are given the ability to work and and have job creations and be able to have um, adequate um, compensation for their time and energy and resources that they contribute so um, land management is something that Indigenous peoples have always done, and it's, and it's time for Indigenous peoples to be able to be recognized and also be able to be compensated and to be able to have jobs and create jobs uh, doing the things that they're experts in doing already. Well, the Chumash people have been um, stewards of this area for a very long time, and having lived in that area for 10 years, I really miss being there. Um, so I live on the Atlantic coast in Maine and mm -hmm. we have cold waters too. Um, not quite as rough um, as the Pacific, but we don't have the same kelp that you do. You have those, that lovely uh, bulk kelp that grows so fast and grows so thick. And as you said, is a, a nursery for so many uh, species and, um, it's not just a nursery, but, you know, the kelp is the biggest carbon sequestering thing on Earth. And so when we talk about, like, every other breath you take is from the ocean. And and the reason why our nomination is so critical and essential is because the kelp um, cannot, the kelp in the ocean and the ocean here specifically have reached capacity with ocean acidification, which means that they cannot absorb any more carbon dioxide from the air and the ocean is becoming more acidified which affects our food sources like our any type of shelled fish um any type of like um scallops or abalone or 
you know, any type of shelled hard fish, which has a calcium shell. So when we think about um, how um, the ocean is so huge and so important, but these kelp forests are here on the coast. They're, like you said, there's not that many of them in the world. And these are massive, massive um, carbon filtration systems underneath the water. And um, their, their value and their benefits to keeping our climate cool and to keeping the world cool is just, un, you know, undervalued completely. And I wish that we could have, you know, an equal amount of funding going into marine science and marine research as we do into state parks, because people can go to a state park and they can play and have fun and they love it and they want to protect it. But it's harder to get access to these, you know, marine resources, but they're equally as important. So not only are the, the kelp amazing to see, but they're, um, you know, keeping us alive, too. And Very well oxygen. said on all those points. <laughs> and, and I'm a kayaker, so I don't get to see what's underwater. I, you know, have to take for granted, except that you have that amazing Monterey Bay Aquarium where you can actually walk into one of the areas and you can see the kelp beds yeah um and it's really it's <clears throat> it's like being in the sequoia national forest you know they're just they're large and there's so much light going filtering through and all the fish and it, it you just you're overwhelmed by the beauty and um that's why i got into scuba diving was the monterey aquarium Really? So if you think about, like, I, I told my story, I, I wrote a story for um, Oceanographic Magazine that was published in issue, I think it was 24 or 34. It was published last month. And it talks about how I got into scuba diving and um, the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary and the Monterey Bay Aquarium were the first exposures I had really to science and 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 research and technology and underwater I thought I was going to be the next Jacques Cousteau and um, my mom was really, really loved Jacques Cousteau and biology. And so I started diving at 12 and I started diving just shortly after visiting the aquarium and sitting right in front of that kelp forest you're talking about. You know, they have the little benches there mm -hmm. in front where you can just sit there and like watch the fish and watch the kelp and watch the sea otters. And I was fascinated by that. And so if I could say anything, it's that how much money we put into educating children about, you know, the ocean, it just is a enormous return on our investments. The more, you know, access people have to those places like the aquarium and like scuba diving and going to the beach and kayaking, the more, you know, likely we are to create the new Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> so I'd like to ask you what you what things listeners can do to help protect marine resources? I think we need to stop, you know, thinking small because a lot of times people think, um, you know, I'm doing everything I can do. I'm, you know, trying to use biodegradable soap or, you know, you do what you can do when you're shopping to be able to support a healthy ocean. But also we need to take big, bold actions and honestly, we really need to go to electrified vehicles. We need to get this pollution under control. We need to get, there's about 70,000 shipping containers on the ocean that are just as bad as traffic in LA and every major city. So people don't see that, how much pollution is going into the ocean via 
shipping traffic, um, dumping trash into the ocean, dumping raw sewage into the ocean. Um, we need to do more than just, you know, change our home shopping habits. Right. And so we need to have those conversations. Do we really need, you know, Amazon delivery overnight from China? <laughs> you know, because stuff like that, you know, it's, it's a huge polluting activity. You're exactly yeah. right. But I'm going to add in here, <laughs> hey, folks, don't put your kitty litter down the drain. Cause yeah, because the... you got to save the sea otters. Yes, right. But it's not just that. Like, when, when that came out, I was a kid. I was little when that happened. And when they found out that the bacteria and kitty litter people have been flushing down the drains was killing the sea otters, I was little. And people instantly stopped doing it the in the campaign the information the connection like oh my god i want i don't want to kill the sea otters but it happened the same thing with straws when you saw that one picture of the sea turtle with a straw stuck through its nose and now people are like oh i don't ever want to use a straw again because there's you know millions and millions of straws going into the ocean except yeah. violet you live in a little bubble of california it's not quite the same everywhere else i know <laughs> but that <laughs> Trust me, I know. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank you for being on the Women Mind the Water podcast. I'm most grateful to you for lending such an important voice to the conversation on connection to the ocean and actions to protect it. I, for one, am most grateful for the passion and dedication of your father and to you for the enduring stewardship of the natural resources along the California coast. I'd like to remind listeners that I have been speaking with Violet Sage Walker for the Women Mind the Water podcast series. The series can be viewed on womenmindthewater.com. An audio-only version of this podcast is available on the Women Mind the Water website, on iTunes, and other sites. Women Mind the Water is grateful to Jane Rice for the use of her song, Women of Water. All rights for the Women Mind the Water name and logo belong to Pam Ferris Olson. This is Pam Ferris Olson.